The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 58. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Thank you, sir. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing one of the episodes from the animated series called Yesteryear. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I just want to encourage you to be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening online, like you hit a play button in, a, in our uh, website or something like that, be sure that you're subscribed in using whatever uh, podcast player you want to use on say, your smartphone. Uh, you can do that in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, in, in that podcast app. Sometimes you can subscribe right from there. Uh, you can go to our YouTube channel, the StarQuest YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to the channel and then hit the bell uh, right next to that to be sure to get notifications when we upload our new episodes. And I uh, also have a programming note or network note. I want to encourage you to check out a new program, a new podcast we have from the StarQuest uh, Network. We have a podcast called American Catholic History, and it profiles stories from, as you might guess, American Catholic History, often stories uh, that you've never heard before about people or places or events that uh, have flown under the radar, uh, but are fascinating nonetheless. Each episode is less than 10 minutes. We try to get them under 10 minutes, and it comes out once a week, and uh, it's hosted by my friends Tom and Noel Crow, and it's excellent. So go and check it out. It's at sqpn.com slash history. So today, though, as I said, we're talking about the uh, animated series once again, and we're talking about an episode that aired in September of 1973. It was the second episode of the animated series uh, called Yesteryear. And it's by DC Fontana, the right. author who gave us a lot of Spock's backstory before in Journey to Babel. Yes. And she also gives us a lot of Spock's backstory here, which makes this the favorite episode for a lot of people of the animated series. That's right. Right. We uh, we get more information about Spock than we have at any time in the original series after yep. Journey to Babel. I mean, a mock time, we get some, but this really expands. And the details that are revealed here... They continue to have relevance right up into Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, uh, Discovery yep. kind of plays off some of this as well. They take some of the, these elements and become part of Spock's story in Discovery. Right. Oh, and by the way, while we're on the subject of Spock and Discovery, uh, there I, I sent you guys a link. I don't know that you've had a chance to see it yet, but they've announced there are six new short tracks coming out. And one of them apparently involves uh, Spock and number one. Oh, cool. Ooh. Because Very the actor, the director, posted a photo of himself and the two actors on on uh, in in the city where they're doing the filming. Oh, very interesting. cool! Interesting. So, uh, 
another element to this is it's also kind of a sequel to perhaps one of the most favorite of all uh, original series episodes, City on the Edge of Forever, for Mm -hmm. most people. It's because we start off back at the planet of the Guardian of Forever. That's the the crux for how this whole thing takes place. And this uh, is only the, the the second and only other appearance of the Guardian of Time outside of the city of the Edge of Forever. This is the only other time we get to see it. Right. Mm. Um, now, well, one of the things that's interesting about the sort of the backstory for this is one of Roddenberry's rules for the animated series was that the stories had to take advantage of animation's ability to show us people in places that weren't possible in live action. And so that's why mm-hmm. we get to see so much of Vulcan and its creatures. You know, at the time. It would have been, you know, enormously expensive to <laughs> to create all of these sets, you know, in live action for Vulcan and the and much the less a, much less a Lamatya dragon and a yeah. big Selot and stuff. Exactly. Well, if you if you so, want to know what that looks like, just look at some of the Doctor Who aliens from that time, and wouldn't have been pretty. Yes, yeah. it would not have been pretty. So like the uh, Yeti. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So Spock's uh, his uh, his pet Salot uh, that is referred to in this was actually referred to, or that we see in this was referred to in Journey of Babel. So that's actually not original to this episode. We we enter, but it wasn't named in that. But we were told in Journey to Babel that he did have a pet Salot, uh, and they also deliberately wanted to include in the story the the, the concept of a child dealing with the death of a pet. Yeah. Uh, so this spoilers. is basically a sci-fi version of Old Yeller. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. That's pretty much it. That's, that's right in the money. Uh, the interesting of the network, NBC wanted them to take it out, but Fontana and Roddenberry held firm on that. They said, no, no, this is this will be done well, and it's the sort of thing that kids can and should see. So interest, interesting uh, aspect to that. Um, so the, 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 the network, when they had signed the agreement, had pretty much given creative control to uh, Roddenberry, so he could so they could only say, we'd like you to take things out, but they couldn't make them take them out. Well, I bet Roger, Roddenberry really enjoyed that. Oh, yes. Especially after, yeah, especially after what happened with the original series. So the, the story starts with, you know, the Federation historians are using the Guardian of Forever to explore Federation history, which seems like a very, very, very bad idea. Well, yeah, yeah, the Federation has changed its policy over time regarding historical research and time travel. Uh, When we first get the Enterprise catapulted back to the 20th century in uh, Return to Tomorrow, it's an accident. But then when we get to the Gary Seven episode, it's like we're just back in history doing historical research for Starfleet. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not accidentally step on a butterfly. Uh, yeah. Well, but, but then well, eventually they developed the temporal prime directive where they're not allowed to interfere at all. Yeah. And in this, they do allude to. So the historians, one of whom I forget what alien race she's a part of, and the other one is the same Birdman race as Score in yep. uh, a later episode of the animated series. But uh, they have Kirk and Spock and uh, another guy in a mission to the dawn of the Orion civilization, which we hear about in other Star Trek media. And Kirk mentions how awesome it was to see the beginning of that civilization, even without touching anything. Right. So apparently they do have the sound of thunder protocol in place of, you know, don't touch anything. Right. 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 But yeah, don't, don't leave any viruses or yeah, I, I, know. I, know. Just, I know. it just seems like a very bad idea. Don't, well, don't step because, on an alien butterfly. Don't. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, even though they they do this, even though they don't interfere in the Orion civilization, as we see in this episode, it still causes everything to change. And so when they come back, McCoy and the others uh, there don't recognize Spock. And they they Kirk thinks that they're having a practical joke. And so they beam up to the Enterprise and Scotty doesn't recognize him. And then in comes the first officer who's not Spock. It's this Andorian fellow named Thalen, who apparently has held the job for five years. Yeah, and, during the whole original five-year mission. Yeah, what about all the times that Spock saved the Enterprise from destruction? Did, did Thalen do that instead? Apparently. Guessing, something apparently, like that. Apparently or Scotty Spock is or not someone irreplaceable. Else. Yeah, Spock wasn't all that important. Sorry. Incident, incidentally, so <laughs> Thalen has, whereas Andorians have like bright blue skin, and the Anar, who we don't yet know from their planet, have kind of white skin, Thalen has sort of gray skin. And he's identified as an Andorian, not an Anar. Um, and some people have wondered about why is he the wrong color? And there's also another thing in this episode. When, when Spock goes and gets the healer, the healer's flyer is bright pink. Yeah. And that reminded me of uh, the an episode we'll talk about in the future um called the slaver weapon or the soft weapon which is based on one of larry niven's stories and the kazenti and their spaceship also ended up being bright pink in that and i read an explanation of why that is it's because the producer i think this is hal sutherland in this case yes was colorblind Mm. and he thought he was approving designs of things that were gray when really they were like bright pink because that was his colorblindness and so I suspect that we may have a pink flyer for the healer here and a gray Andorian for the same reason. Right. We I think this came up when we talked about the animated series in an overview. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like some some of the Klingon uniforms and the Tribbles were pink. Um, and yeah, some of that stuff like that. And um, there was also yeah, part of it. Yeah. Is the, the, the color grading. But um, yeah, Hal Sutherland, who was the, the director of this episode and others, uh, to him, pink was light gray, and so that's what he thought he was seeing. Uh, well, oops. I wonder too if it's you know part of the, the color reproduction as well for TVs at the time was was not good. So, like for example, uh, wasn't it that uh, like uh, the command uniforms in the original series, of course, live action version, but right uh, were supposed to be green, but they came across as gold, or gold. vice versa, they were gold, but yes. they came across as green, and exactly, and and I think even Spock's skin was supposed to be more yellow uh, than it showed up. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in any case, they they realize that Spock has somehow been erased from history, but only Spock. Only Spock is the only change, and uh, they they figure out based on the Federation records that Spock died at seven years old during the Kazwan ritual on Vulcan, uh, and it was the same day Spock remembers that his life was saved by his cousin when he was attacked by a wild animal. And very quickly figure out that Spock was Selleck. We only have thirty minutes here, folks, so we have to yeah, yeah in the in the in the animated episodes. So they have to move yep. quickly through some yeah, of this. It's basically a twenty minute story. Also, yeah. they tell us that after Spock died at age seven, his parents separated and then Amanda was killed at Lunaport on her way back to Earth. So she right. left Sarek and went back to Earth and died on the way. A- apparently blaming him for Spock's mm-hmm. death or something, which is which actually is an interesting. It, that's kind of often happens when parents lose a child. Uh, it does. Exactly. It happens. So uh, they make the logical connection that Spock was Selleck, and since history, then and realize then that 
since history played out in the Guardian, so the the researchers were looking at Vulcan history th- mm. uh, of that time period through the Guardian. While Spock was in Orion's past, it meant that he couldn't be in two places at once, a logical contradiction, and he couldn't save himself this time. And yeah, that's so, how he got removed. So apparently when they had the Guardian open to Vulcan history from 20 to 30 years ago, that history became changeable. And right. since Spock was in another time zone on Orion, he couldn't save himself. And I'm not sure I, I buy this explanation, but it sounds okay. <laughs> yeah. For it sounds sufficiently wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It stand up in Doctor Who. That Just let me put it that way. Well, we, we just, of course, we just talked about the uh, Fires of Pompeii episode of Doctor Who and its similar plot point of, you know, someone causing a historical event to happen. Exactly. It is this circular uh, causation. So we have this uh, interesting interaction between Spock and Thalen, who is the first officer in this timeline, uh, who is about to be displaced. Spock is going to go back in time and fix this error. And Thalen recognizes that he's going to be replaced here. And who knows what actually happens to Thalen. I mean, maybe he dies as a result of this. Maybe in the original timeline, he died uh, on a different ship, or perhaps, or something or like that. maybe he, he became captain on a, uh, on a different ship. It could be. Uh, but uh, he says he, he doesn't mind this change because Andorians value family in this action uh, by going back in time will save Spock and his mother. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of moment that they take out of this episode to kind of have Thalen being very selfless about this letting uh, aiding and abetting this yeah and in journey to babel dc fontana had already established that the andorians are a warrior race and so there's kind of knowing that there's kind of like well why would thalen be okay with this and so he makes the point that you know why doesn't he try to stop this from happening why isn't he invoking temporal prime directive and so um so they provide this explanation that even in a warrior race you care about family, and I'm going, yeah, that's actually quite true, uh, because warrior societies, societies with high levels of violence, are very family-oriented, and they have to be, because exactly. you need those families to produce the next generation of warriors. So families are at a high uh, value in, uh, in high-violent societies. They're the only right. people you can trust. So the uh, wardrobe department, as they call it, on board the Enterprise, provides Spock with the appropriate uh, clothing and, and gear to fit in on Vulcan. And he travels to the city of Shikar, which is confusing because Shikar is also the leader of Bajor later on. But yeah, the, that, that was unfortunate. Someone wasn't paying attention when they passed out names. Uh, and, he, and he goes to the 20th day of Tasmin in the year 8877 on Vulcan. So they're an older right. society than we are, or they have really short years. Right, right. Uh, and they, uh, they, we have, he encounters, he sees him, his younger self being bullied for being half Vulcan. Um, and he... Uh, your, father, your father brought shame to Vulcan by marrying a human. Yes, and apparently Vulcan uh, boys wear um, very short briefs and and some sashes. kind of bandolier sash thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very it's interesting. Mark Lenard, who played Sarek in the live-action series, both the original series and Next Gen, uh, returns as Sarek. Uh, but Majel Barrett voices Amanda here, although the, the character, right. the drawing of her looks a lot like... Um, Jane Wyatt. Jane Wyatt, thank you. But uh, she she does the voice. 
Uh, and as usual in the animated series, uh, James Doohan does pretty much everybody yeah. else. Mm-hmm. I know we talked about during the, the uh, when we were doing kind of the introduction to the animated series, but they purposely cut down the cast dramatically. You know, yes. so there's yes, only a, only a handful of the, the original cast were actually in it. Right. Uh, I, I liked uh, James Doohan's uh, voice of the Guardian. Uh, it sounded like he was chanting the whole time. It was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Spock uh, introduces the uh, adult Spock introduces himself to Sarek as a distant cousin and says he's uh, traveling to the family shrine to honor their gods, which is I thought was interesting that mm-hmm. Vulcans. Yep have a religion and that they they honor their gods at their at family shrines uh i thought that was fascinating uh, idea that Mm -hmm. this logical race still has a religion um then sarek and and adult spock have a actually and young spock have a discussion and he presents this choice that spock has to make as choosing between vulcan philosophy of logic and um not non-emotion, but less emotion, and the the human philosophy. There's competing philosophies that yeah. he says. For the first time here, we get an on-screen admission that Vulcans have emotions. I mean, that's always, they've always been played as if they do, even though they're in denial about it. But yeah. here, Sarek is just open about, yes, we have emotions, but we control them instead of letting them control us. And then, and as part of that process of decision-making is this Kazwan ritual, this uh, coming of age ritual where a seven year old has to survive for 10 days without food, water, or weapon on Vulcan's Forge, the most inhospitable place on the planet. Can you imagine shoving a seven year old into the, like, say, the Gobi Desert? Yeah. <laughs> or Death I, I, Valley for 10 I, days? I, I, I love how it's called Vulcan's Forge because that wouldn't mean anything on Vulcan, but here on Earth, that's a myth- mythological reference because. Vulcan was the god of the forge. He was the blacksmith. Right. And so Vulcan's forge, held originally to be Mount Etna by the Romans, um, what is a thing in Earth mythology, and I like how it gets reflected here. <laughs> so Sarek uh, then says that uh, he tells Spock, no pressure, but while other Vulcans can fail without dishonor, not you. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure on that seven-year-old there. So yeah. you, you, you have to pass on your first try uh, or you've dishonored yourself and no one will ever believe that you're an actual Vulcan. I found it interesting that the Caswan is a maturity test for males. So apparently females either don't have a maturity test or they have a different one. And uh, Spock is scheduled to do the Caswan next month. And he doesn't immediately remember, well, wait, why was I saved then on the 20th of Tasmin by my cousin if I'm not scheduled to take it till next month? But he's got to survive, and this is a test that um, Spock says in narration. And by the way, it's him who does the admitting that Vulcans have emotions. It's not Sarek. Um, But uh, Spock says in voiceover that this ritual is a survival from warrior days before Vulcans turn to logic. And so it's it's pre-Surak. But the... um, uh, they decided that if they were going to do logic successfully, they still needed to maintain strict disciplines like warriors. And so they kept this warrior ritual around for purposes of maintaining the discipline one would need to live strictly according to logic. 
Right. They didn't, well, they didn't want to be, become weak and helpless logicians. They yeah. had to also be courage, courageous and strong. Well, and it's also interesting, too, because I know there's a lot of talk in our time about uh, coming of age ceremonies and so on. You know, having having a certain point where you're coming of age. And uh, it's kind of interesting that they, they would play into that even with this episode. Yeah. Okay, so here's an interesting thought. Since Vulcans experience Ponfar every seven years, their first time, males, uh, their first time might be at about the time they're doing the Kaswan. If this is a maturity test, does that mean Spock is an adult at this point and can get married and make babies? Well, they did say it was, it was a, that if you pass, you will be an adult. But I, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it's at seven or is it fourteen? Is this mark the start would, of a cycle, or it would be this be the you know yeah seven years after this? I don't know. Hmm. Let's hope. Uh, yeah, let's hope. Bear <laughs> yeah, doesn't exactly. bad thinking about otherwise. I really do, you know. Um, but meanwhile, yeah, like you like you said, Jimmy Spock had forgotten that it wasn't the actual Kazwan ritual that was the 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 event. Uh, and although somehow Federation records recorded it as such, uh, but that it was. Uh, young Spock decided to see if if he's got what it takes to survive out there before it counts, and that's yeah. why he 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 heads out. Um, because uh, uh, adult Spock thinks that he's miscalculated and ended up a mo- he's going to spend a month there. Um, but he sneaks out, um, tries to make sure that Aichaya, his uh, Salot, stays behind. They're this elderly pet that would that he had uh, inherited from Sarek. It was Sarek's pet when he was a kid, and uh, but it, it follows him anyway. And then young Spock is attacked by this big green Lamatia, which is sort of a cross between a, a lot mountain lion and a dragon. And it has the Godzilla roar. Yes, yep. it, it definitely the Godzilla roar. It, but, it, but, isn't it the Lamatia what we see in Discovery, by the yeah, way? Yeah, at, at least that's how I understand it. Also, notice that in Discovery, also, Spock ran off by himself at night, and it caused huge problems for the family. And that's why the Red Angel appeared. Well, this is the thing that I wanted to bring up here, and this is a bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen the second season of Discovery, so uh, skip ahead a couple of minutes. But um, if is is this seems to be in, like almost an intentional echo or rip off, depending on your point of view, of this plot in Discovery, the future Burnham saving her child self from an attack by a Lamacha. I mean, is this not the same thing? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was an absolute conscious oh, parallel. Right. I had it backwards. It was yeah. uh, Burnham. Burnham. Yeah. Yes. Burnham and had run Spock, off. Spock said where she was going to be. So right. apparently um, the Sarek household had lots of runaways. <laughs> but Cybok too, parents. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Cybok. <laughs> well, Cybok should have run away and got eaten by a Lamach and everyone would have been a lot happier. With that. The world would have rejoiced. <laughs> Instead, he ran off and joined the Cyrenites. Yes. Uh, But I just thought that was interesting that we have this. uh, I'm trying to think of what what to think about this. How old was the Spock of Discovery when he when Burnham was living with them? Was that before this or after this? I see. I got the impression it'd be after this, maybe not quite teen, but older than seven. I don't know. I don't know. They implied he wasn't yet fixed on I am a Vulcan yet, so that would imply yeah. that it's younger, that Before it's younger that. than this. I mean, yeah. he looked younger than, than this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so I just thought that was a very interesting echo of this. I mean, it's the, the easiest way to put it, uh, the, the least pejorative way to put it. 
So in any case, the the the, the Labatya attacks young Spock, and Achaya, the Salot, um, who had followed him, saves him, but it's Spock, as Salak, who jumps on the creature's neck and then neck pitches it into submission to to knock it out. Um and uh, and and thus it has the moment of saving the boy. Mm-hmm. Uh then um young Spock admits that his his parents' differing desires for his future can, is confusing to him, and I really like that. Like this, mm-hmm. th- there's a there's a complex uh, plot in here about parents and children and their hopes and dreams for him, them, and and how those hopes and dreams can be confusing to a child, uh, sure. I- I- without the parents necessarily realizing it. I thought and, that was really nice. And this plays out something from Journey to Babel, where it was established that Spock and Sarek don't get along, that uh, Sarek right. does not understand his half-human son. Amanda mm-hmm. does understand him and is supportive of the Vulcan ideals, but she also is still a human. So she's not fully just, yeah, Vulcans are superior in all ways. So she has mixed yeah. emotions. And that plays out in this. Um, yeah. And Spock analyzes talks to and gives his younger self an analysis of his younger self psychology based on mm-hmm. his parents well i like i like the line that spock says in here of of how you know human emotions aren't fatal right mm-hmm. right yeah because that spock at this point has started to integrate his human emotions into himself and he in these because young spock says uh that when he sees amanda's emotions in himself her her um, emotionality i guess it embarrasses him, but uh, the adult Spock counsels him. He needs to learn that Vulcans have emotions too, but that logic gives them serenity. Which I like that uh, the, that way of looking at it. It's it's not that Vulcans are emotionless; it's that they have emotions, but logic is a way of tempering that emotion and gives them peace in the midst so, of emotion. So Spock achieves that serenity, and then it takes him out to the black. Yes, says exactly. that he's not coming back. and two by two hands of blue andorians yeah there you go so meanwhile poor aichaya is dying because it had been clawed uh by the lamacha the would it be poisonous or venomous i was thinking of that there's a difference poison and venom i think isn't venom the thing what animals have and poison is what's in plants i think usually venom is, is what the animals produce you know we talk about snake venom and things like that Versus yeah. po- other, poison uh, ivy, you know. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, we do talk about poisonous snakes. Yes. So but I think the it. terms are kind of fluid. Yeah. No pun so intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I saw that. Uh, so uh, young Spock, it, it, or adult Spock says, I'll go back to the city and get help. And young Spock says, no, no, it is my duty. I caused this. Uh, I have to go it, run through the dangerous. And I'm like, you just doomed your pet kid because adult Spock has longer legs than you do. <laughs> he can run yeah, exactly. faster. Yeah. So um, now, interesting, as he's running through the forge you know, overnight, he encounters, we ha- we see this encounter with these yeah. living vines. This cool, fuzzy octopus plant thing that grabs him and he just shrugs it off. Well, they're sucker vines. and uh, Now, apparently that scene was longer where he has to fight against them a bit to escape. Mm-hmm. But this was a, a moment where the NBC censors did get their way. They thought it was too intense for the children watching, and that's why they, it's, mm. it's so short. Mm. Uh, they don't show him having to struggle. So he goes to the healer in the middle of the night, wakes him up. By and the way, he- <laughs> meanwhile, back at the ranch, Spock is yeah. there with Aichaya, and he's like, sorry, yeah. old friend, I can't 
help you, but I can ease your suffering. Sleep now, and he neck pinches him. Yes, that's yep. that's right. Um, so young Spock shows up at the uh, the healer's house in the middle of the night, and the healer thinks that he's uh, uh, doing this human thing called practical jokes. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. young Spock has been r- doing some practical jokes. On yeah, folks. He, he did one he, two years ago. I know. It's like <laughs> yeah. that was so two years ago, dude. When I was five, <laughs> like five-year-old practical jokes. Okay. Has anyone ever said the son of Sarek is a liar, man? <laughs> no, then, no one said that. I guess I'll come and help you. So the so the healer does come with them, and uh, meanwhile, adult Spock then tells uh, they get show up with the healer, who says that Achaya cannot be saved, and and they they're going to have to put him to sleep. Um, although I I doubt Vulcans would use the euphemism "put to sleep," uh, but. In any case, adult uh, Spock tells young Spock that death should be faced without tears, that you only mourn a life lost if it is wasted, and Aichaya's was not wasted. Mm-hmm. Except in the sense that it was wasted by Spock when he went out alone <laughs> and let the beast follow him. Right, yeah. right. Tears of regret? I don't know. Um, so it, they, put, they put the choice to young Spock. That yeah. What are we going to do? And he decides to have old Yeller shot. Yes. With a well, syringe. With, yeah, at least he doesn't get a shock into the face like old Yeller. Um, so they, uh, they, rather than prolong his life with pain, they put him out of his misery. Um, and apparently we learn that uh, the adult Spock teaches young Spock how to do the nerve pinch, thus creating a, uh, a, a time paradox. Yeah, uh, bootstrap here. paradox. Yep. So that's, uh, that's uh, well, just put that in your pipe and smoke it. And then... Um, Adult Spock says that the death of Aichaya this time was different, that the, mm-hmm. he didn't uh, die in the original timeline, but apparently uh, that's okay, that it didn't, it didn't have repercussions um, in time after this, as far yeah. as we know. It's and, interesting. Think about how old Aichaya must be, because Sarek is over 100, and yes. if he had him as a pet when he was a boy, I mean, wow, Vulcan dogs live a really long time. Yeah, they do. <laughs> They live like 200 in a Vulcan way. He's seven years old. That's seven years to you and me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, and then, you know, Kirk was waiting outside the Guardian forever. Um, Apparently, so when they came back from Orion, the people standing next to the Guardian forever, they, they, the time change affected them. But this time, Kirk standing there, it didn't affect him. So, a well, bit of so, an inconsistency. So, Kirk carried the memories. Uh, they didn't open up any other time periods while, and scan them while Spock okay. was back in the past. So, Kirk retained the memories of the Orion mission that he had brought into this timeline. Mm. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Now I have some logic and some headcanon for that. So, good. Yeah. <laughs> so, but no one on the ship remembers the different timeline. Um, and it's time uh, once again, cause that's all McCoy does is time for, uh, annual physicals for everyone uh, yep. on board. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, Spock tells McCoy that it's McCoy is complaining that he's got to recalibrate his machines every time to do a Vulcan and, uh, and which is kind of 1960s today. You just press a yep. button and it would snap the Vulcan template into place. Exactly. But, um, but back then uh, it would have been harder. And so Spock tells McCoy, well, if, if things had turned out differently, you, you should count yourself fortunate. If things went a little differently, 
you'd have to recalibrate for an Andorian. Apparently, they've got even weirder physiology. And <laughs> McCoy says, is that supposed to be a joke? Let me remind you that Vulcans don't tell jokes. And Spock says, times change, doctor. Times change. So apparently, <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be making more jokes. Yes. Outro irony. <laughs> so um, any, uh, any further notes on this, uh, either of you, on, on this uh, episode? Nope, nope, nothing here. I liked the nice Vulcan landscapes and architecture. I thought the animation did a really good job conveying an alien planet to us that was beautiful and strange. So I liked that. Um, you will notice there is a huge planet in the sky um, that uh, that is not meant to be there because originally in Journey to Babel, DC Fontana, or no, not Journey to Babel. It was uh, the Corbomite Maneuver, I think, uh, or maybe the Man Trap. It was established Vulcan has no moon. That's right, because there's the scene with uh, Uhura where she goes, I bet the moon in Vulcan is beautiful. Vulcan has no moon. That's apparent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The uh, So that's a mistake in the art, and it was caught. Apparently, Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana both wrote no moon when they saw this in the art, but it got used anyway. Uh, I like how in when Spock is in the past, he's doing his personal log entries and he's using modern star dates. So he'll say personal log star date 5373.5 and you're going, wait, but he's in the past. Subjective time. Yes. So it's like yep. he's kept his watch running in the past. <laughs> That's like when you when you fly somewhere and you keep your watch in your home time zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, when he first shows up and sees his younger self being bullied, Sarek says, I hope my son's display of emotion didn't embarrass you. It's like, no, the other kids were, were much more at fault. Yeah, was much my more reaction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, what Spock says instead is, in the family, all is silent. And I thought that was, that's so well phrased. That's got to be like a Vulcan saying. Right. Like a Vulcan right. proverb of, in the all, family, all is silence. And it's so, a Sicilian proverb, actually. What's that? Sicilian it's a Sicilian too, yeah. proverb. Omerta. Um, <laughs> so that's my headcanon for that. Um, then I like how when they refer to the healer, they don't just say what we would say, go get a veterinarian or go get a doctor. They have this slightly more exotic word, but so healer sounds more exotic, but um, it's way better than go get a space vet. <laughs> yes. or go get an astro doctor or something like that i much prefer healer yeah um, i like at the end where spock has come back from his sort of abortive caswan and says that he's definitively chosen the vulcan path and we get this shot of amanda and she just closes her eyes because she's been supportive but has misgivings about spock taking the vulcan path and this is like her this is a this is a painful moment for her to see him turn his back on his humanity in this way. Also, I like how now that young Spock has learned the nerve pinch, he's like, I'm going to go show this to the bullies now. Whoa. Deliberately start paying back bullies. OK. Um, and then uh, Spock tells Sarak to try to understand his son. And that's nice. Mm hmm. There was another nice uh, inter- exchange between Kirk and Spock at the end, where when Spock returns to the to the present, he says that uh, once referring to uh, Aichaya dying, he says, uh, you know, a, a, a pet died. And, and Kirk says a pet. Well, that wouldn't mean much in the course of time. 
And Spock says it might to some. Yeah. Which which exactly that's a, that's a nice little little saying there. That was very nice. All right. So uh, before we wrap up, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek and new shows like American Catholic History, like I told you about before. Um, with, it's only possible through the generous financial support of our patrons, uh, including Christine G, Pat F, Steve S, Michelle M, and Daniel B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows we do at StarQuest. You can join them in, in their financial support by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of Yesteryear, the animated series episode, which you can watch, by the way, on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's available if you have uh, either of those services. So let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash trek or the SQPN Facebook page and leave us feedback there or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the original series episode, Mud's Women. Until then, Father Corey Stigia, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Glad to be here and thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, times change, Doctor. Times change. <laughs>